0: crazy I'm crazy for feeling so lonely I'm crazy, crazy Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King Cast One Man's Musings on the Works of Stephen King Each week, I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And this week, I'm reviewing 1987's classic nail-biting thriller whose antagonist is just as chilling as any of King's iconic monsters. A lean, mean novel clocking in in just over 300 pages that reads like a two-person play, so it shouldn't come as a surprise that it later was adapted as a play, but not before its infamous cinematic adaptation whose performance by Kathy Bates earned a well-deserved Academy Award. A novel that's about the thrilling battle of wills between the victim and the victimizer, an author's worst nightmare come true and a therapeutic exercise of an author who took the opportunity to exercise very real demons. Of course, I'm talking about 1987's Misery. As I'm going to get into throughout the episode, Misery is King's opportunity to examine the pitfalls of celebrity, the insatiable demands of an artist's fans, and addiction in its many forms. The novel itself would have been a Bachman book had King's pseudonym not been made public at that point. He wrote it as a response to the harsh backlash that he received from the publication of Eyes of the Dragon when his fans demanded that he stick to horror. The fantasy stuff, they made clear, would not fly. The novel, as I stated earlier, is later made famous by Kathy Bates, whose performance as Annie Wilkes is just as terrifying as Jack Nicholson's turn as Jack Torrance. I'm going to go into a lot more detail next week in the movie review, but for now, let me just say that Annie Wilkes is an incredible villain with an equally incredible performance by Kathy Bates. Now the novel itself, it's just, it's a great stripped down personal novel. The last novel was a fantasy, and the one before that was the ultimate statement on horror, time, our place in the cosmos. This is where King can take a deep breath and write about writing, celebrity, fandom, addiction. These are not easy topics by any means but I'm sure that he had his arguments and feelings welling up inside him for a while at this point, and I hope that this novel was as therapeutic for him as it seemed to be. Now, in regards to the obsessive fan, remember that this predates the internet, the paparazzi, and fanboy culture. This is before cosplay and popularized fan conventions. This is a novel, uh, despite being written in 1987, that is almost more relevant today than it was at the time of its own publication. Now, before I get further, I'm going to stop here and read the Wikipedia summary so that I have a basis for the rest of my analysis. Paul Sheldon, the author of a best-selling series of Victorian-era romance novels surrounding the heroine character Misery Chastain, has just finished the manuscript of his new crime novel, Fast Cars, while staying at the Hotel Balderado, Since 1974, he has completed the first draft of every one of his novels in the same hotel room. With his latest project finished, he has an alcohol-induced impulse to drive to Los Angeles rather than fly back home to New York City. However, a snowstorm hits while he is driving through the mountains. Sheldon drives off a cliff and crashes upside down into a snowbank. Paul is rescued from the car wreck by Annie Wilkes, a former nurse who lives in nearby Sidewinder. She takes him to her own home rather than a hospital, putting him in the guest bedroom. Using her nursing skills and stockpiled food and medical supplies, including an illicit stash of codeine-based painkillers, Annie slowly nurses Paul back to health. She proclaims herself as Paul's number one fan, being an avid reader of the Misery Chastain series. However, when she reads the manuscript for Fast Cars, Annie's argues with Paul on its violent content and profanity, causing her to spill his soup. Saying that the accident was his fault, She punishes him by withholding his medication, then forcing him to wash it down with soap water. Paul, who has done extensive research into mental disorders, suspects that Annie is dangerously disturbed. When Sheldon's latest novel, Misery's Child, hits the shelves, Annie buys her reserved copy. She doesn't know, however, that Paul has killed Misery Chastain off at the end, intending to end the Misery series and re-establish himself as a mainstream writer. Upon learning of the main character's demise, Annie rages at Paul before leaving him alone in her house for over two days, lest she do something, quote-unquote, unwise. During this time, Paul suffers from extreme pain and withdrawal from the painkillers. By the time Annie returns, he's close to death. Annie forces him to burn the Fast Cars manuscript, the book he hoped would launch his post-misery career. And presents him with an antique royal typewriter for the purpose of writing a new Misery chaste novel that will bring the character back from the dead. Paul bides his time and writes the book as Annie wants, believing her fully capable of killing him. He manages to escape his room while Annie is on an errand, touring the house in search of more painkillers. He's almost caught by Annie, but manages to return to his room before she enters the house. On another occasion, when Annie is absent, Paul escapes his room again and steals a knife from her kitchen, intending to kill her. On the way back to his room he finds a scrapbook full of newspaper clippings for Annie's life suggesting that she is a serial killer who murdered her own father, her college roommate, and numerous patients in several states 39 people in all. She was arrested and charged with killing several babies at a boulder hospital but was acquitted. He also finds a magazine clipping about his status as a missing person. Annie eventually reveals that she knows about Paul's excursions from his room and punishes him by cutting off Paul's foot with an axe, an act called hobbling. Later, when Paul complains about a missing letter on the typewriter, she punishes him by slicing off his thumb with an electric knife. A Colorado State Trooper eventually arrives at Annie's house in search of Paul. Realizing that a chance for escape, Paul alerts the officer by throwing an ashtray through the window. However, Annie surprises the trooper stabs him repeatedly with a sharpened wooden cross, and finally rides over him with her lawnmower. She temporarily hides Paul in the basement while she departs, meaning to dispose of the trooper's body and his police cruiser. Paul finally finishes writing Misery's Return and calls Annie, who has been eager to read it, to his room. Knowing that once Annie has read the completed book, she intends on killing both Paul and herself, due to the police getting ever closer to discovering she killed the state trooper. Paul surprises Annie by using the single match she provided with him to light his cigarette, having convinced her that smoking was his normal practice after finishing a novel to seemingly light his manuscript on fire in front of her, having first soaked it with a bottle of charcoal lighter fluid he smuggled into his room from the basement. While Annie frantically tries to put out the flames, which by this point has spread to her clothing, Paul lifts the heavy typewriter and throws it down hard onto Annie's back. The two engage in a violent struggle with Paul stuffing Annie's mouth full of the burning pages. Annie gets to her feet and steps forward to attack Paul, but trips on a typewriter, causing her to hit her head on the mantelpiece. Although first appearing to be dead, Annie awakens and crawls towards Paul, who in turn frantically crawls away from Annie towards the door. Just as he reaches the threshold of the room, Annie reaches Paul and tries to strangle him, but instead she collapses from her injuries. Paul then crawls out of the room, closes the door, and locks the bolt that Annie had installed. After slumping down in front of the door, Paul feels Annie's fingers tugging his shirt from under it. Horrified at the question of how she's still alive, he pounds at her fingers, then makes his way to the bathroom for more Navril. He finds some, and swallows some, and sleeps against the door. Awakening, Paul musters up the courage to leave the bathroom in an attempt to escape, uncertain if Annie is either alive or dead. After slowly crawling to the parlor, he sees headlights through a window and two state policemen approach the house. He finds an ornament of Annie's and throws it through the window to get their attention. When they find him, Paul warns them about Annie still being alive and her being locked in the guest bedroom. They leave him to investigate. When they return, they tell Paul that they had not found anything but a shattered bottle of champagne and the room burned. Paul screams until he faints. Later, it's revealed that Annie had escaped through a window and gone out to the barn in order to get a chainsaw to kill Paul. However, she had died in the barn due to the skull fracture inflicted when she fell against the mantelpiece, one hand grasping the handle of the chainsaw. Returning home to New York, Paul submits Misery's return to his publisher. It was earlier revealed that he burned a decoy of the manuscript instead of the book itself. Paul's publisher tells him that the book will become his greatest bestseller, however the ordeal is far from from over for Paul. He suffers nightmares about Annie and continues to have withdrawals from painkillers. He has also become an alcoholic with writer's block. Eventually, after a random encounter with a child pushing a shopping cart containing a skunk in a cage, Paul has the same spark that inspired him to write fast cars and begins typing about this boy and his skunk, weeping as he types both in misery for his shattered life and in joy that he's finally able to write again. So as for the novel itself, um, it gets you right away. I mean, the opening is fantastic. I mean, you don't know what's happening, but you need to know what's happening. So you just have to keep on reading. Now, it's fascinating to read Annie as a metaphor for both his addiction and his rabid fan base. From the first time we meet her, she's breathing life into him, refusing to let him go. Paul rejects the breath, clearly wants it to stop. This, to me, reads like Stephen King making the effort to step a little bit away of horror and his fans screaming at him, no, no, you have to stay as a horror writer, breathing life into him, forcing him to to remain alive and vibrant in this particular horror genre. Now, this is a novel that does not waste any time. Coming hot off the heels of its thousand-plus page, um, It... This book is lean and mean. Not even 10 pages into the book, King writes, "...he discovered three things simultaneously, about 10 days after having emerged from a dark cloud. The first was that Annie Wilkes had a great deal of novel. The second was that he was hooked on novel. The third was that Annie Wilkes was dangerously crazy." Not even 10 pages in, and boom, it's just established. The conflict's there, and you want to keep on reading. I mean, the the threat level, the tension level is just presented right up front. It's not a slow build. It's just there. It's built into the very, very opening, and it continues throughout. Uh, and this is, like I said, it's, it's a total, the paperback edition is a total of 338 pages, but it just flies by. And I'll be honest, this is probably going to be one of my shorter podcasts because the last... Uh, 60 pages or so i didn't even really bother to take notes because i just wanted to i don't want to say get through it but i i just i was just so engrossed in reading it i just wanted to keep on reading it's been a long time since i've i've read misery i've only read it once i've seen the movie a couple times and it's ingrained in my head um but it was good for me to go back and i found myself very uh not surprised i wasn't surprised because i i had a feeling i was gonna really enjoy it but you know, I, 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 there, there are the Stephen King novels that I know that I love. Um, it, clearly, the Dark Tower series, Insomnia, uh, Black House. There, there's ones that I can just constantly go back to. Um, and there's ones that I never even think about touching again. Misery is one of those ones. And very much like the Christine review that I did a few months ago, um, I was just so happy to be swept away in it and be surprised by it and um you know for uh, a a story that has been popularized and ingrained in our collective pop culture consciousness it's one that um felt very very fresh to me um and then talking about annie he goes on very early to establish the growing dread through wonderful descriptions of annie uh they're incredible so he writes on page 12 there was a queer interval of silence and paul was frightened by what he saw on her face because what he saw was nothing the black nothing of a crevasse folded into an alpine meadow a blackness where no flowers grew and into which the drop might be long it was the face of a woman who has come momentarily untethered from all of the vital positions and landmarks of her life, a woman who was not who has forgotten not only the memory she was in the process of recounting, but memory itself. He had once toured a mental asylum, this was years ago when he had been first researching misery, the first of four books which had been his main source of income over the past eight years, and he had seen this look, or more precisely, this unlook. The word which to find it was catatonia, but what frightened him and no such precise word. It was, rather, a vague comparison. In that moment, he thought that her thoughts had become much as he had imagined her physical self. Solid, fibrous, unchanneled, with no places of hiatus. And on page 27, uh, King takes an opportunity to, seems, take a pot shot at the fans who reject innovation and newness. Then an odd angry thought occurred to him. She doesn't like the new book because she's too stupid to understand what it's up to. The thought wasn't just odd. Under the circumstances, how she felt about fast cars was totally immaterial. But thinking about the things she had said was at least a new avenue, and the feeling of being angry at her was better than feeling scared of her, and so he went down it with some eagerness. Too stupid? No. Too set. Not just unwilling to change, but antagonistic, to the very idea of change. Yes. And while she might be very crazy, she was so different in the evaluation of his work from the hundreds of thousands of other people across the country, 90% of them women, who could barely wait for each new 500-page episode in the turbulent life of the foundling who had risen to marry a peer of the realm. No, not at all. They wanted misery, misery, misery. Each time he had taken a year or two off to write one of the other novels, what he thought of as his serious work With what was at first certainty, and then hope, and then finally a species of grim desperation, he had received a flood of protesting letters from these women, many of whom signed themselves your number one fan. The tone of these letters varied from bewilderment, that always hurt the most somehow, to reproach, to outright anger. But the message was always the same. It wasn't what I expected. It wasn't what I wanted. Please go back to Misery. I want to know what Misery is doing. He could write a modern Under the Volcano. Um, The sound and the fury, it wouldn't matter. They would still want misery, misery, misery. It's hard to follow. He's not interesting. And the profanity. The anger sparked again. Anger at her obdurate density. Anger that she could actually kidnap him, keep him prisoner here, force him into a choice between drinking dirty rinse water from a floor bucket or suffering the pain of his shattered legs, and then, on top of it all, find the nerve to criticize the best thing he had ever written. That, to me, is not just... um an author in a story uh that is all of the frustrations that stephen king the author has felt uh it's clear um and it's powerful so scenes like this really pop off the page between pages uh passages like this one and the ever-growing threat of annie herself dread fills the page when paul realizes that she has finished his latest novel and has discovered that her favorite character has died e- The indignities that Paul has to suffer are disturbing, and they're painful to read. In fact, despite all the supernatural horrors that King has crafted so far in his other works, these scenes might be his most horrific. He's given us a father and daughter on the run from the government, a psychic with a terrible decision to make, children's at the hand of legit monsters, their abusive fathers, but Paul might be his most vulnerable character yet. After realizing that his legs are completely pulverized, we see how completely helpless he is. His willpower is crippled from the forced addiction, and his legs are crippled from the lack of care he receives at the hands of this madwoman. When she presents him the choice between burning his manuscript for pain relief or sitting in agony, the choice is one of the most thrilling and agonizing scenes he's subjected us to in any genre. It's not hard to imagine King, the author of the body and the Shawshank Redemption, coming through here using this scene as a way to confront the Annies of his life who demand only horror. The price of success in this case, the price of comfort, comes with giving away a little bit of yourself, your voice, your artistic merit, your creative potential. How dare you try something new, King seems to say. Know your place, little horror author. Like the monster she is, she convinces him that his action is his own, that he actually has a choice in the matter, that burning the manuscript is of his own free will, when, of course, it's the will of his tormentor and kidnapper. When Paul realizes that Annie will kill him if the car is discovered when the snow thaws, King creates a ticking time bomb and a new sense of urgency that carries through the rest of the novel. Soon after, Paul tests the waters to see what he can get away with, and not since apt pupil do we see a game of wills and constant one-upmanship between the two. Annie, sensing her prisoner, is attempting something even if she doesn't know what it is, responds with the brutality of assaulting his legs and leaving him in the wheelchair to suffer. And in terms of tension... Who knew that the simple act of exploring a house could be so thrilling? When Paul temporarily escapes from his room, it's erased against time before Annie comes home. We start to see how little say Paul has in his current existence, even when it comes to his craft, which is overseen by Annie like a plantation owner, forcing Paul not only to write a fresh Misery Chastain novel, but to rewrite the portions he's managed to complete. I should note at this point that King has blurred the lines between fact and fiction by having Paul refer to the audience as constant reader, King's own term of endearment for his fans. What Paul soon learns is that Annie will simply not accept what he has to offer and challenges his resurrection of Misery Chastain. Paul then realizes that he has to create a resurrection that will satiate her needs or else he may pay with it with his life. Again, in the era of spoilers, fanboy, and internet culture where movies are judged by minute-long trailers that come out sometimes over a year in advance. This type of scrutiny and over-analysis of parts rather than the whole make this an incredibly relevant read. Not only does King use the opportunity to explore the relationships between fan and author, but also the writing process with the improv styling of a can-you game, which resembles the what-if beginnings. Of many of King's stories, but also those rare Eureka moments that happen, as it does with Paul, with fast cars. Now, I just want to stop here and talk a little bit about the Stephen Kingism of the protagonist as the writer. We've seen it before with Salem's Lot, The Shining, The Body. Um, we're going to see it again with uh, Dark Half, Dreamcatcher, Desperation, uh, Bag of Bones, Secret Window, Secret Garden. And that's just in Stephen King works. Uh, this particular Stephen Kingism has created a genre trope that at its worst can be self-indulgent. Um, in my opinion, many times, descriptions of the writing process uh, if, if written badly can be dull, laborious, uh, can seem as exercises of the writer to imbue meaning in a process that's meaningful to the author but meaningless to the reader. I often wanna to say to King, we get it, you like writing, clearly. <laughs> Any issues I have with the writer as the main character do not extend to Paul Sheldon or this novel because the craft of writing is essential to the plot, the conflict, and the characters. It's a novel that won't work with Paul being any other uh, profession. The same cannot be said for Salem's Lot, even The Shining and others. The only other novel, I think, where writing is um, necessary to the story, its characters and themes and conflicts, uh, is the dark half. But that's just my my little aside. Uh, When Annie leaves again... Paul explores the house, and with the scrapbook, learns the truth about the horrors of Annie Wilkes. And just when he formulates a plan, just when King gives us the smallest of hopes, he snatches it away. Like the great villain that she is, Annie begins monologuing, and King teases us with brief descriptions of Paul hearing thumping sounds. We begin to grow very uneasy, trying to figure out what he's hearing, and what it has to do with Annie's reveal that she has known that Paul has been sneaking out of his room and getting healthier. And then, just when her irrationality begins hitting its crescendo, she refers to giving Paul a pre-op shot. Paul and the reader begin to get extremely frightened. With this scene, King, who has been content with giving us a nail-biting thriller, gives into his horror strengths, as if to say to the reader, is this what you want? Are you sure? Just remember, you're to blame for what happens next. And the scene itself is among King's most iconic. Brought to terrifying life by Rob Reiner, James Caan, and Kathy Bates in the film adaptation, which I'll talk about next week, makes a change to the horror that Paul experiences. The hobbling of Paul Sheldon may very well be King at his most horrific. I don't recall ever reading a scene as terrifying, its victims so helpless, a scene built up and drawn out like the slow and steady build-up to a roller coaster whose crest you both can't wait for and dread at the same time. Oh, God, the hobbling is gruesome. And here, King unleashes the gut-wrenching torture with the smallest bit of dark glee as the scene builds to Paul screaming, Annie, please don't hurt me, and Annie's darkly comedic response of, Don't worry, I'm a trained nurse. King then flash-forwards to the summer, where we discover that Annie hasn't stopped at the foot and has continued to chip away at him, specifically chopping off his thumbs. From this point on, it's more of a horror than a thriller with the gory execution of the rookie cop and Paul stuck in the basement with the rats and the corpse. It's during this time when Paul decides to take care of Annie himself rather than alerting the police to her dangers, police who would naturally overwhelm her. Now it segues into a revenge story and after Paul that has been put through, we need it to be. And his revenge comes satisfactorily from the end of a flaming match, a great middle finger to Annie's required destruction of fast cars. And finally, we see Paul win the upper hand with Annie begging him not to do it. It is a brutal ending, and Paul's victory is never guaranteed. Even after he beats her and crawls to safety, even when the police comes, even months later when he's safe in the city. After all, he may learn that he's killed Annie Wilkes, but he'll never truly escape her. So now I want to talk about the characters. Um, actually, you know what? I don't. It's not. It's not necessarily the characters. I want to talk about what Annie represents here. Um, on page, I've already read one description of Annie, but I want to read another description here um, of Annie uh, on page seven, and it goes from seven to eight of the paperback edition. Uh, so, whenever she came into the room, he thought of the graven images worshipped by superstitious African tribes in the novels of H. Ryder Haggard, The Stones, and The Doom. The image of Annie Wilkes in an African idol out of she or King Solomon's minds was both ludicrous and queerly apt. She was a big woman who, other than the large but unwelcoming swell of her bosom under the gray cardigan sweater she always wore, seemed to have no feminine curves at all. There was no defined roundness of hip or buttock or even calf below the endless succession of wool skirts she wore in the house. Her body was big, but not generous. There was a feeling about her of clots and roadblocks rather than welcoming orifices or even open spaces, areas of hiatus. Most of all, she gave him a disturbing sense of solidity, as if she might not have any blood vessels or even internal organs, as if she might be only solid Annie Wilkes from side to side and top and bottom. He felt more and more convinced that her eyes, which appeared to move, were actually just painted on, and they moved no more than the eyes of portraits, which appear to follow you to wherever you move in the room where they hang. It seemed to him that if he made the first two fingers of his hand into a V and attempted to poke them up her nostrils, they might go less than an eighth of an inch before encountering a solid obstruction that even her gray cardigan and frumping house skirts and faded outside work jeans were part of that solid, fibrous, unchanneled body. So his feeling that she was like an idol in a perfervid? perfervid yeah, novel was not really surprising at all. Like an idol, she gave only one thing, a feeling of unease, deepening steadily towards terror. Like an idol, she took everything else. She isn't just a fan— Here, she's presented as some sort of universal force that he'll eventually have to conquer. It makes his conflict that much more daunting. The scene in which she confronts Paul over the death of Misery is wonderful to behold. I said earlier that this is an author's worst nightmare, and it's not hard to imagine King easily channeling thoughts that I'm sure had been percolating in that brain of his when writing this character, specifically in this scene where she blames him for the death of her favorite character. Probably isn't hard for King to imagine similar fans confronting him over the death of, spoiler alert, for the novels i reviewed so far. Uh, but Johnny Smith, Tad Trenton, Andy McGee, Gage Creed, Judd Crandall, Wolf, Eddie Kasprick, and other more devastating deaths yet to come. With Annie, King explores the relationship between the writer and his audience. Specifically, what the writer owes his audience, if anything. Annie speaks on behalf of the superfan, who exists in our reality as the Dark Tower fan who makes demands upon the author, who takes it personally when the author takes him or her down an unexpected road. Rather than appreciating the unpredictability of the story or the freshness of constant creation, this fan demands that the creator exist within the confines of the status quo, a purgatory where fans oftentimes thrive and creators languish. The simple fact is, fans fear change. It's why critically panned television shows are oftentimes the most watched. There's a level of comfort knowing that after a long day of work, you can turn on the TV and watch the exploits of your favorite characters interacting with his or her friends, bosses, loved ones, or wacky neighbors the same way they did the week before and will again a week later. Rinse, repeat. The push-pull between change and innovation has been a constant dilemma for comic book creators who find themselves oftentimes unable to tell fresh stories and... Um, of decades-old characters because the fans demand that the character exist in a permanent state of stasis. Bruce Wayne has to be Batman. Peter Parker has to be Spider-Man. Creators have tinkered with these formulas, often to thrilling and exciting results, but at the end of the day, the characters have to revert to their most widely known selves because of fan demand. And when it comes to Annie, I think of myself, almost 20 years ago, engrossed in the Dark Tower series. I was Annie. Annie. I felt as though King owed me because of the time that I had invested in his works. And I think of the disappointment that I felt when reading the final three Dark Tower books upon release. How I felt personally slighted, personally attacked. Certain characters deserved better, I thought. We deserved better, I thought. He owed us. Well, time goes on, and while I can't erase those initial feelings, I can revisit that concept. In the relationship between the author and the reader, does the author owe it to the reader to deliver happiness? Of course not. It's absurd to think that. If the writer chooses to because he or she feels it and thinks that's best for the characters, the story, and the reading experience, then yeah, of course. But if the author feels that anguish is best for the reading experience, then of course the author has to do just that. It's difficult to be able to separate the fan from the reader. It's fandom that constantly gets in the way. It's a double-edged sword. It pulls you in that much deeper, but if the creator doesn't deliver on your unrealistic expectations, then the creator is doomed to message-board hate. With these two characters, King is fully able to explore the relationship between artist and fan. And with Paul and Annie, we see an unhealthy, codependent relationship of need, both addicts, both each other's dealer. While Paul represents the more obvious aspects of the addict, suffering from very recognizable physical addictions brought on by meds, Annie is the other side of it. While Paul might be an addict and may have to overcome the addiction, Annie is the junkie. With her, all rational thought has been turned off. There's no wish or want to get better. All there is is the drug, the need, the want. Her drug, of course, is misery, and Paul is her dealer. In the role of the addict, we often find Paul lying to Annie, keeping secrets from her. He snuck out of the room, for instance, and he steals both food and pills from her. Thievery, as you know, isn't an uncommon act for addicts. Likewise, Annie's marked by severe mood swings, um, so uncontrollable you'll never know where you stand with her. Family members of addicts can no doubt relate. With Annie, King is able to take off the gloves and go at the section of audience that critiques without having the background or knowledge to do so. He touched upon this within the body when Teddy and Vern criticized Gordy's story's ending. Here, however, King is almost malicious in his takedown of the uneducated dimwit who doesn't know enough about composition, structure, or storytelling. For instance, his disdain is palpable during the scene in which Annie demands a rewrite in the novel and recounts a time when she watched old serials and thought that the deus ex machina plot device was an example of good storytelling. It means that not only was he forced to burn the purest of his art now, not only does he have to return to a formulaic genre which shackles his creativity, but almost dumb it down for his one-woman audience. Hilariously enough, Annie isn't wrong, and it gives shading to what could have been a scathing dismissal of this type of fan, who in turn um, has an understanding of elements of storytelling that make for a gripping experience. Uh, now's the part where I want to get into the Stephen Kingisms. Uh, the first of which I've already talked about is the, the author as the protagonist. Um, and that's here with Paul Sheldon. We've seen it before, like I said, uh, with It, with Salem's Lot, with The Shining, we're going to see it again, with The Dark Half, um, and others. So it's, it's definitely something that, that King famously uh, likes to do. Uh, the second is the protagonist trapped in a bed away from civilization. We're going to see this specifically, again, with Gerald's game. Number three uh, is the effect of cars. Paul's injuries are a result of a car crash, which has been seen before in Carrie, Christine, The Dead Zone, The Gunslinger, Pet Cemetery, and will be seen again in Dreamcatcher, Insomnia, and The Dark Tower. Frighteningly enough, these injuries seem to foretell King's very own life injuries again at the wheels of a car. And the manuscript that Paul has to burn is ominously entitled Fast Cars. As if this entire time, his entire career, some part of himself knew the fateful encounter would one day occur and would try to warn him through the pages of his books. Like the forces of the Crimson King were really trying to kill him after all. Number four, the prisoner helping the jailer with his taxes. First in the Shawshank Redemption, here with Paul assisting Annie with the house tax matter. And then uh, number five is references. Look, it was just a matter of time, really. Really? what with the novel taking place in colorado but annie explicitly mentions the overlook and it's doomed caretaker jack torrance and then now i am going to read what i think the most potent um and important uh passage is from the novel and it is found in the paperback edition on page 286 and it very much feels like stephen king Speaking through here. So what was the truth? The truth, should you insist, was that the increasing dismissal of his work in the critical press as that of the popular writer, which was, as he understood it, one step, a small one, above that of a hack, had hurt him quite badly. It didn't jibe with his self-image as a serious writer, who was only churning out these shitty romances in order to subsidize his flourish of trumpets, please, real work. Had he hated misery? Had he really? If so, why had it been so easy to slip back into her world? No, more than easy, blissful. Like slipping into a warm bath with a good book in one hand and a cold beer by the other. Perhaps all he had hated was the fact that her face on the dust jackets had overshadowed his in the author photographs, not allowing the critics to see that they were dealing with a young mailer or cheever here, that they were dealing with a heavyweight here. As a result, hadn't his serious fiction become steadily more self conscious? A sort of scream. Look at me. Look at how good this is. Hey, guys, this stuff has got sliding perspective. All this stuff has got stream of consciousness interludes. This is my real work. Don't you dare turn away from me. Don't you dare, you cock a brats. Don't you dare turn away from my real work. Don't you dare, or all. So, that to me is King just speaking on his experiences as a horror novelist who many times is dismissed by the 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 larger uh critical community and not even the critic community just just dismissed outwardly by a lot of people who quote unquote don't like that horror stuff um and just see him as just a blood and guts author so like i said this entire podcast I, i just feel as though this novel was very very therapeutic for him to deal with a lot of the things that he was going through at that time So uh, I I think that now, almost 40 minutes in, I think it's pretty clear that I really, really enjoyed the experience of this novel, and I strongly recommend it to to anyone. Um, And then next week, I'm very excited to be able to review the Rob Reiner film, Misery. Uh, Like I said, starring James Caan as Paul Sheldon and Kathy Bates as Annie Wilkes. So make sure you, you stick around for that. In the meantime... Uh, If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to iTunes, uh, the podcast on iTunes, because the more subscriptions I get, uh, the higher up in the podcast rating it goes, and it kind of gets it out there more so. For everyone that's been uh, following me lately on Podbean, I really appreciate it. Every day, it seems like I'm logging in and finding a new follower, so that's, that's awesome. Thank you, everybody, and feel free to follow me on Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, Facebook, and Tumblr. And drop me a line at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com to to share your thoughts, which I will then, in turn, uh, share on air. So, everyone, um, have a great week, Uh, and I'll see you here for our review of the Rob Reiner adaptation of Misery. Same King time, same King channel, Stephen Kingcast.